After spending the first three chapters of this letter teaching theology, that is what God has done to reconcile us to himself and to one another, after spending three chapters talking about theology, Paul has now been unfolding the practical implications of that doctrine. That's what he does in chapters 4 through 6 of this letter to the Ephesians. And he does it that way because our beliefs shape our behavior. What we have come to know about ourselves and what we have come to know about God that determines how we think, that determines how we act in this world. Think of it like this. Paul poured a foundation in chapters 1 through 3. And now in chapters 4 through 6, he's saying, this is the kind of life that you can and should build on that foundation. This theology, this truth about who God is and how He's reconciled you to Himself and to one another, that is a foundation upon which you can and should build this kind of life. This is how you should speak. This is how you should treat other people. This is how you should deal with conflict. This is how you should handle sin and temptation. This is how you should work at your job. This is the kind of father you should be. This is the kind of kid you should be. And our study has us in the middle of all that orthopraxy, all that right living that is for your joy and for God's glory. And now today, we come to the Apostle Paul's description of a good marriage. There is a lot of ideas, depending on who you ask, there's a lot of ideas about what makes a good marriage. And there have been a lot of public marriages over the years that we have maybe called good. And we've seen things that we want to imitate in those marriages. For example, Winston Churchill and his wife Clementine were happily devoted to each other for over 56 years. And some would say that they were perfect for each other, but no one else. There's a story one time at a dinner party. A woman came up to Winston Churchill and she said, Sir, if you were my husband, I would give you poison to drink. To which he famously replied, Madam, if you were my wife, I would drink it.
Well, here's what Paul says in the text before us. According to God, this is what a good marriage is. Because Paul writes as God is inspiring him to write. So God is communicating his truth through these biblical authors. So according to Paul, according to God, here is what a good marriage is. And this will be the main point of this text. Therefore, it is the main point of this sermon. A good marriage is patterned after and portrays Christ's relationship to the church. So whatever you think a good marriage is, we're humbly coming before God's Word and saying, Paul, what do you say in these verses a good marriage is? And what he says is, a good marriage is, it's patterned after, and it consequently portrays Christ's relationship to the church. A good marriage looks to Christ and His church as its paradigm or its model and then emulates that relationship and reflects it to anyone watching. Now, thankfully, Paul has spent a lot of time describing Christ's relationship to his church. And so now he says the husbands and wives imitate that relationship. Reflect that relationship. And in the verses before us, Paul tells us exactly how to do that. So let's get started. But first, let's pray together. Will you please bow your heads with me? Father in heaven, through your word and by your spirit, teach us, we pray. Fill us with more knowledge of you that we would love you more. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. If you're using one of our church Bibles, you'll find today's text on page 919. But I'll point out different parts of this text. And you all can't help but hear, but I would encourage you to put a Bible on your lap so that you can see with your own eyes exactly what it is that we're talking about. Here again is the main point of Paul's text here. A good marriage is patterned after and portrays Christ's relationship to the church. So look at our text, and here is an outline of how Paul does this. In verses 22 through 24, this is a good wife. In verses 25 through 30, this is a good husband. 
In verses 31 and 32, this is the mystery of marriage. And then in verse 33, what you have is a closing summary. And I'd like to begin out of order. And I hope it'll become clear why in a minute. But I'd like to do this out of order only by beginning in verses 31 through 32. Because verses 31 and 32, they unveil what Paul is alluding to in verses 22 through 30. You see in verse 32, Paul says, I am saying. In other words, he had been saying in the verses before indirectly what he says directly in verse 32. He has been alluding to the mystery of marriage in those verses. And now, in these two verses, he just spells it out. So look with me at verse 31. This is after he's given instructions to wives and then to husbands. And then he abruptly quotes... Genesis 2.24, which is the original institution of marriage. God invented marriage, and if you go back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, you see the origination of marriage. You see the establishment of marriage. He quotes it verbatim. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. That is a description of marriage at the very beginning of Genesis. First, a man leaves his father and mother. He moves out. He he gets a job. He launches. Second, he holds fast to his wife. He marries her. He commits himself to this one woman. He enters into covenant with her. And third, they become one flesh. The two become one. God merges two lives into one. Now this is done backwards in our culture. Sometimes it's turned completely upside down, but this is God's design. A man shall leave his father and mother and then hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So Paul quotes that and then he says this in verse 32. This mystery is profound And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Remember what a mystery is in first century Palestine. Because they use the word differently than we do. When we use the word mystery, we mean that something, there's a truth that's, that's hidden from us. We don't yet know what it is. But in biblical writing, a mystery refers to a truth that was once hidden, but now it's been revealed. 
So for us, we might say photosynthesis is a mystery. You know, how plants took water and sunlight and carbon dioxide and turned it into energy, that was always true, but only relatively recently that's been revealed to us through science how that works. So that is, not was, using the biblical term, that is a mystery. Or the gospel is a mystery. The gospel is not some new truth, but we have, in the last couple thousand years, come to truly understand how it is that God is able to forgive people of their sin and reconcile them to himself. So a mystery is a truth that was once hidden, but now it's been revealed. And Paul says this particular mystery was profound. The Greek word for profound is mega. It means big. It means huge. It means deep. This is not the truth that is obviously floating on the surface of the ocean. It's in the depths at the bottom of the sea. It is the kind of truth that when you grasp it, it dramatically changes the way you think about something. It is profound. This mystery is profound. What's he talking about? And I am saying, here's what he's been alluding to in verses 22 through 30. I am saying that it... That is marriage, which he had just referenced in verse 31. I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. The profound truth that Paul is revealing is that marriage refers to Christ and the church. The profound truth that Paul wanted the Ephesians, that God wants us to grasp the profound truth. It's not obvious. It's deep. Is that a marriage between a husband and a wife refers to Christ and the church. A truly Christian marriage, as described, and we're going to read it next in verses 22 through 30, it is patterned after and it portrays Christ's relationship to the church. How does it do that? Well, let's go back and read the two parts above where Paul has just explained How a good wife and a good wife pattern their relationship after Christ and the church. Let's begin with a good wife in verses 22 through 24. Verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. There's a couple things to see right away here. First. Women are not called to submit to men. 
wives are called to submit to their own husbands. And second, a wife submits to her husband as to the Lord, Paul writes. That means a wife's submission to her husband is part of her devotion to Christ. The way Colossians 3.18 puts it, Paul puts it there, he says, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. It is out of your love for Christ that you submit yourself to your husband. So that's the basic instruction. And then Paul gives his reason in verses 23 and 24. For, like, why do I do this? He doesn't have to give us a why, but God is often so gracious. Here's the why. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now the word head, it signifies authority. The word head signifies authority. There's really no getting around this. People have tried to get around this because that word can be used to mean something else, but it doesn't mean that something else not a single time elsewhere in the New Testament. So the word head signifies authority as Christ is in authority over the church, so the husband is in authority over his wife. That's the reason. Verse 24, Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So here's what Paul is saying. Wives, submit to your husbands in the same way the church submits to Christ. Your Submission to your husband is to be patterned after the church's submission to Christ. That is a high and difficult calling. But let's make sure we're not making it more difficult than it is by thinking some more about this. Paul is not saying that a wife is unequal to her husband or inferior to her husband. According to Genesis 1.27 and Galatians 3.28, men and women, husbands and wives are equal in dignity, equal in value, equal in worth. This submission here, it is voluntary. One commentator writes that the verb submit, the same word here, that that verb submit can be used of Christ's submission to the authority of the Father, like it does in 1 Corinthians 15, 28, shows that it can denote a functional subordination without implying inferiority or less honor and glory. So what does it mean then for wives to submit to their own husbands? A wife's submission to her husband 
is a disposition or attitude that affirms the leadership of her husband. A wife's submission to her husband is a disposition, an attitude that affirms the leadership of her husband. It's not just an attitude, of course. Like all attitudes and dispositions, it works itself out into behavior. The point is that it begins in the heart. So a good wife wants her husband to lead. A good wife wants her husband to take initiative. A good wife will resist sinful impulses, like those described all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, to maybe work against her husband. She'll work against those impulses. A good wife wants her husband to take responsibility. A good wife respects her husband. A good wife prays for her husband to lead. Her whole disposition, that's what Paul is describing here, her whole disposition, it affirms and it encourages the leadership of her husband. Now here's the thing. Ladies, your husband is no Christ. He is no Christ. He is not inherently worthy of your submission. He may not even be respectable a lot of the time. So understand that this kind of submission to a sinful husband, it is only possible if you have a great God and faith in him. That's the only way it's possible. A wife's submission to her husband is overflow from her faith and trust in God, which is why Peter in 1 Peter chapter 3 calls this submission adornment. It's this beautiful thing that a wife puts on that others can see. And it is an overflow of her faith and trust in God. You might remember what else Peter did in that chapter. He pointed out the glory of Sarah's submission to her husband. And one of the reasons her submission was so beautiful is because he was so bad. Abraham, of all the great things about him, I mean, he, he went through a stretch where he was a really bad husband. We won't get into it, but you could go back and read. And he, he probably did things that your husband has never, ever, ever done. And yet Sarah was in submission to him. Her willing submission to her husband, who was a mess, her willing submission, it showcased to the world around her faith in an all-satisfying God. Like, what's enabling her to do that? How is she able to do that? Well, my faith and my trust is not in Abraham. My faith and trust is in God. And so in obedience to him and for his glory, 
I could submit myself. And it was a beautiful thing, a glorious thing. Adornment, Peter describes it. Now here's an important note. An important thing to note. For, for husbands in the middle of this teaching for, for wives. And that is that God requires wives to submit to their husbands, right? There's, there's, no, there's no qualms about that. It's really obvious. God requires wives to submit to their husbands. But certainly not here, nor anywhere else in Scripture, does God require husbands to require their wives to submit. And I think that's really important to note. Because this text is often used abusively and wrongly by professing Christian men. This text right here, verses 22 through 24, it is explicitly addressed to wives. I would say, husbands, this text is not for you. It's certainly not to you. Wives, you are required to submit to your husbands. Husbands, you are not called or required to demand that your wives submit to you. That's not the text. Paul's about to tell you what you're required to do as a good husband. Nevertheless, Paul makes it clear in verses 22 through 24 that wives are to pattern their relationship to their husband after the church's relationship to Christ. So I would encourage those of you wives, you're married, and you're asking yourself, okay, what does it mean to be a good wife? And you probably have all kinds of things that come into your mind. Well, note what Paul says here. A disposition and an attitude that affirms the leadership of your husband is a good and beautiful thing. And then ideally, ideally, husbands are doing the same thing. And a husband and wife would complement one another like this. Ideally, husbands are patterning their own behavior after Christ's toward the church. So let's look at a good husband in verses 25 through 30, note that there are twice as many verses for the husbands. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. It's really interesting. Nowhere in the Bible, nowhere in the Bible are wives called to love their husbands. And nowhere in the Bible are husbands called to submit to their wives. There's a focus here. There's a focus here. And Paul gets right to the heart of it. For husbands, a good husband understands that his headship means primarily authority to love and serve. Not necessarily what we think of when we think of authority. But this authority clearly is authority to love and to serve. A good husband has one bride. He is, as 1 Timothy 3.2 says, literally a one woman man. 
He's not committing adultery or spiritual adultery. His eyes aren't wandering. He's not lusting. He's not looking. He's not fantasizing. He's not flirting. He's a one-woman man. And husbands, we are called to give ourselves up for our wives. To love our wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Ironically, this kind of husband would never demand his wife's submission. He's looking to give himself up for her out of great affection. This husband looks to sacrifice himself for his wife and for her children. He is ready to die. And the best husbands are. He's ready to die. He's ready to die a daily death. He's ready to sacrifice his own life. Sure, he's ready to take a bullet. But he's ready to take the heat. He's ready to stand between her and harm. He's ready to take the slander. He's ready to take even her correction. It is a daily dying to yourself for the good of your family. Which is why 1 Peter 3.7 says, Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Looking to understand your wife, to be considerate of your wife. Why? Because your goal is to love and serve her, to give yourself up for her. It's why you would never, ever want to do Colossians 3.19. Husbands, love your wives. What is the opposite? Do not be harsh with them. What follows in the text is a description of Christ's sacrificial love. And there are many things that, that Christ does that husbands cannot do. And so this is not saying in these verses to follow, husbands, do all these things for your wife. No, in Christ doing all these things for your wife, it is an example of what it means and a model to give yourself up. The theme is sacrificial love. But verse 26 and 27, here's how Christ loves us. Here's how Christ loves his church, that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In Revelation, in chapter 19 and 21, the church is described as the bride of Christ and there will one day be this wedding feast where Christ and his church will be united together in heaven. And on that day, the church, God's people, you and I as Christians, will truly be perfected. We will be without spot and without blemish. Now, husbands, we do not sanctify our wives. We do not cleanse our wives. But here, I think, is the point. We do, we should, 
give ourselves in love that our wives may reach their full potential in Christ. We give ourselves up in love that our wives may reach their full potential in Christ. That our love would promote that is our goal. I really like the way John Stott has described this. So let me read you a paragraph out of his commentary on Ephesians. He said, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her in order to cleanse her, sanctify her, and ultimately present her to himself in full splendor and without any defect. In other words, his love and self-sacrifice were not an idle display, but purposive. And his purpose was not to impose an alien identity upon the church, but to free her from the spots and wrinkles which mar her beauty and to display her in her true glory. The Christian husband is to have a similar concern. His headship will never be used to suppress his wife. He longs to see her liberated from everything which spoils her true feminine identity and growing towards that glory, that perfection of fulfilled personhood, which will be the final destiny of all those whom Christ redeems. To this end, Christ gave himself. To this end, too, the husband gives himself in love. And then Paul goes on in verses 28 through 30. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. As a husband will instinctively and naturally defend himself, protect himself, provide for himself. He should defend his wife, protect his wife, provide for his wife, nourish and cherish his wife, give himself up for his wife. So husbands, we are to pattern our relationship with our wives after Christ's relationship to the church. We are to love our wives, which means out of our great affection for them, we are to give ourselves up for them and for their good. Now in conclusion, Paul gives a closing summary in verse 33. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And so that is the foundation, Paul is saying, of a good marriage. A good marriage is patterned after and portrays Christ's relationship to the church. A good marriage is one in which the wife submits to her husband as the church submits to Christ. And a good marriage is one in which the husband 
loves his wife as Christ loves the church. I wonder what you think a good marriage is. I wonder what, before this message, you thought a good marriage was. And I wonder if you can accept this truth from Paul about marriage. I wonder if you will commit yourself to being this kind of husband, to being this kind of wife for your own joy, for God's glory. I want to close by just saying a couple things to some different groups of people that might be represented here. First, to say something to those of you who are not married. When you as someone who is not married, young, old, whatever you are, when you see a truly Christian marriage, take note. That's one of the things that Paul is making clear here. For any of us, married or not, when you see a truly Christian marriage, take note because this is the profound mystery. It refers to something. It refers to Christ and the church. That means that you're being shown something in a tangible way. You're being shown something about Christ's love for his responsive bride. That you could see something and feel something and know something as it's on display before you. So take note of truly Christian marriages around you. Others of you are not married, but you will one day be. Even you little kids in here. You don't want to think about that. But it is very likely that one day you are going to be a husband or you are going to be a wife. And I hope that this sticks in your mind. What will you be looking for? What will you be looking for in that person that you marry? When that time comes, men, look for a woman who will support, encourage, and affirm you. And ladies, look for a man who will give himself up for you. Second, to those of you who are married, but you're in a difficult marriage. You're in a difficult marriage. And maybe it feels like a, a one-sided marriage. And there are, many, there are many parts of the Bible that, that speak directly to you and have good and helpful and encouraging things to say. But staying right here in Ephesians chapter 5, it might be true that a good marriage is out of reach for you. That might be true. 
that a good marriage is out of reach for you. But you can be a good husband. You can be a good wife. You can pattern your behavior after Christ's relationship to his church. And if and when you do that, though it may not mean, and I say this sadly, while it may not mean that it equals a good marriage, it will be the way to your joy and God's glory. And then finally, a lot of you are, a lot of you are married. There are many, by God's grace, there are many truly Christian marriages in this church that I've been so thankful for, for so long. Well, the good news, again, when you think about, you know, what it, it means to have a good marriage and what it means to be a, a good husband or what it means to be a good wife, there, there can be a lot of even extra biblical pressure uh, of what that means and, and what that looks like. And as a wife, I've got to do this and I've got to do this and I've got to be this and I've got to be that. Or as a husband, I've got to do this and I've got to be this and I've got to be that. And that can be difficult. It can be paralyzing. The good news is that, sticking with what Paul says here, the good news is that by God's grace, this is something you can actually do in your marriage. There may be a lot of things that you feel pressured to do in your marriage and to be the kind of wife that for whatever reason you feel pressured to be that you just cannot be. Husbands, same thing. But God never calls us to do something that you can't actually do by his grace. And for most of you, that's exactly what you promised to do in your vows anyway. Many of you said these vows, they're the most traditional vows. I take you to be my to be my wife, ladies, to be my husband, to have and to hold from this day forward for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish, to honor and respect until we are separated by death. As God is my witness, I give you my promise. It's true. You may not have money. You may not have security. You may not have status or influence. You may not have a lot of things. You may not even have health in your marriage. But by Christ, you can love and respect one another. By the grace of God, you can pattern your marriage after his relationship to the church. 
and you can portray it. You can portray the gospel, Christ's giving himself up for his responsive bride to the watching world. So may we all take note of the profound mystery that a truly Christian marriage is patterned after and portrays by God's grace. Speaking of portraying something, remember that that's what we do every week when we take communion together. We have another portrait that will be before us God has given us all these different senses, and we might come to know more about him through them. And so we will taste something soon. We will hear something. We will see something as we get out of our seats, and we take this bread and this juice, and we remember, celebrate, and proclaim the death of Christ in our place. So let me get our heads right by reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23 again where the author of our letter wrote this to the Corinthians, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it. In remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. If you're visiting with us today, you're welcome to take communion. If you are a baptized believer, you've turned from your sin, placed your faith in Christ, committed yourself to him, to his people. So you're committed to this church or another that preaches the same gospel that you heard here today. We'll have leaders up front to serve you, and we ask you come forward and take that bread and juice and then return to your seat, and please wait, and then we'll take it together as a family. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word, for revealing yourself to us. Thank you for giving us your spirit that we could interpret your word, understand And come to know you more and love you more. And we trust that's happened today. Be glorified, be honored now as we remember, celebrate, and proclaim the death of your son in our place. We pray it in his name. Amen.